Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Joining us today is Ashley Klein, candidate for Indiana House of Representatives, District 39. For those of you who don't know, District 39 encompasses the majority of Carmel, Indiana, which is a suburb to the immediate north of Indianapolis. Ashley is a native of Carmel, and as a realtor in Carmel, she is a small business owner, and most importantly, she is a mom. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. How are you doing? Oh, I guess as good as you can be with three little ones at home during COVID. But yeah, it, it's been a great election season so far, uh, despite some of the setbacks that we've had uh, getting out into the community. But we've we've still done our work and we've still been out and, and I think it's going real well. Yeah, definitely an extremely interesting time to r- be running for office. You've, you say you've got three little ones at home during COVID and we are, what are we at? 30 some days, I think, out right now from the election. Yeah, 35 days. Yeah. Yeah. Almost there. Yeah. Final home stretch. So Ashley, why don't you tell us just like a little bit more about yourself and what motivated you to run for office? A little bit of background on me. I, uh, like you said, I'm from the district. I grew up here in Carmel, went to Carmel High School. I was very active in athletics. I was student body president, went on to Purdue, got a degree in political science, worked in international relations and, uh, Ireland, Italy, and then in New Zealand. So I was able to travel quite a bit during my four years at Purdue. And also at my time at Purdue, I interned in 2001 for the state legislature during a budget year and a redistricting year where I worked for Representative Greg Porter, Representative Vanessa Summers, and Representative John Aguilera, which that year was invaluable for giving a perspective on how these 10-year census and redistricting maps are drawn. A lot's changed since then, obviously, but uh, that was a very big year in Indiana. After college, I started in uh, at a law firm where I worked as a paralegal in commercial real estate, caught the bug there, got my commercial real estate appraiser's license, and started doing valuations uh, at a mid-sized firm here in Indianapolis for manufacturing, industrial, hotel, hospitals, retail strip centers all across the state. So I'd worked from Evansville up to Fort Wayne to Northwest Indiana. So a lot of good experience there looking at that 30,000 foot view of how businesses are attracted to our state and how our infrastructure and everything connects the facilities that they, they build here. You've been busy and you've been all over the state, by the way, fellow Purdue grads. So. Oh, there we go. Boiler up. Yeah, that's, right. that's it. That's the best. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, my last job, I got to travel all over the state and I really think that it did a lot for me in terms of understanding all of the different populations and communities that we have, which I think is super important for somebody who's going to be an elected official. So you have done a lot in the past few years. What is it that made you decide that you wanted to run for office? Well, some of the background that I had, obviously, in a legal setting in commercial real estate, but one of the, the biggest, I guess, fires that was lit under, under me was when I worked at United Way of Central Indiana. I worked there during uh, the recession with foster youth who were aging out of care. So I would work with 14 to 25-year-olds teaching financial literacy, assisting with housing placement, 
education, transportation, and really what I noticed, and also at United Way, working with the umbrella of 100 agencies, you know, that make this community work every day with their $40 million campaign at the time, I noticed some of the areas where our government, you know, can fill in some of the gaps and try to assist in helping our citizens that these agencies are maybe burdened with where with state legislative solutions i think we can we can get there a little sooner and then again i also have a real heart for the youth that i was working with aging out of care some of the statistics for those young people um, are quite daunting and i think the state could do more uh, to support them and after working there and doing residential real estate sales, I've always been a residential realtor. I've always had two jobs, but I noticed as I was working with families in, in Carmel, across Washington Township, downtown, wherever, all across the city, the number one question that families ask or want to talk about are schools and school systems. So if the largest asset that people are purchasing in their lifetime, for the most part, is their home, and the number one, I'm talking 99% of people are concerned if they've got children or how the schools are performing and how they will serve their families. And what I've noticed over the last you know, 10 to 20 years in the state of Indiana is a lack of funding for public schools, increases for teacher pay, increased you know, responsibility for these teachers to you know, work with these standardized tests that might not necessarily be working efficiently. And when I saw that, you know, most of the people don't realize that the decisions being made for those schools are coming from the state house. I thought maybe with my experience background, I could be valuable there. Great. And I really appreciate that. I can relate to that a little bit. That's kind of why we do the shows because we also see a huge gap in resources. And it seems like nobody, again, just like you said, a lack of awareness and education community-wide, like nobody really knows what anybody else does. They know that, you know, this over here is not good, but I don't know how to change it. And so I think that it's awesome that you're someone who is in the know and you want to get in there and try to help those people. I mean, it's clear to me already that you have a passion for helping kids and protecting kids and ensuring that our next generation can have the best possible start in life. And I think that Indiana oftentimes lags behind the rest of the country in some of those ways, healthcare, um, stuff like that. I know that two of your most prominent issues that you're running on are um, education and childcare. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what you think that those issues are and what your vision is for the future? You know, I'm 39 years old, I'll be 40 in November, and I already am talking about the good old days in Indiana of when teachers were given the freedom and the autonomy to teach and to know their classroom and know them well because, you know, teachers are professionals, they're educated in that manner, and, and we have to give the trust back to the teacher in the room. And what I'm finding with the, the over-testing, you know, a child today will sit for 30 hours in a school year just taking a standardized test, and I don't think the neighbors that I meet and talk to in Carmel are, are interested in that continuing at the rate that it is. We've also seen virtual schools, you know, funded and, and a massive investigation starting there for, you know, fraud of students not actually being enrolled in these virtual schools at a time when now we see during COVID, it would have been really nice to have an infrastructure for virtual schools if it would have been done and the legislature would have put some teeth into that, into that policy so they would be held accountable. And, you know, 90% of our kids go to public schools. And when we talk about, you know, 1.6 million residents in the state of Indiana are children. 
They're not the ones with the voting power. They're not the ones with the wherewithal to know how to make these policies and these classrooms more friendly for them or their learning environment. And I feel like, you know, at this point, we just need to step up and be their voice. And in childcare, uh, I'm specifically concerned with this. In Hamilton County, we pay one of the highest rates for childcare across the state of Indiana. And families in the middle class are finding a pinch for the years that they have that full-time childcare payment. And what we're not realizing, I guess, statewide is that every family is affected by this. And I think COVID amplified it in a very real way to show who's essential and and who needed to be at work to keep our economy and our systems on full force. So as the cashier at Kroger or a gas station attendant or, you know, someone who was, you know, working in the schools trying to go virtually and and makeshift a classroom, all of these people have children of their own. And and when we can't have childcare in an affordable and a safe manner for these families, I think we find that the very base of our economy shuts down. I mean, it's interesting that you already were running on these platforms and then here we go with a global pandemic and it illustrates your point exactly. It's like, listen, if we had these things in place, maybe we wouldn't be in that situation that we are now, you know, when you have some of those essential workers who can't do both, they can't be home, but they also can't at the same same time they're at work. But if their kids are home, I mean, I can't even imagine how difficult that has to be for, especially those people who can't afford childcare. Yeah. And I think what we need to think about in Indiana is, You know, the government's ability to benefit our citizens and all families, working families, I think we need to realize that one of the easiest ways that we could, you know, maybe give folks a raise, provide more income and and more spending money for these families is to tackle this childcare issue. And it's funny during, you know, early parts of the century when wartime and, and obviously the Spanish flu, I know there was, you know, some speak of this too, but Childcare was one of the most essential pieces to putting our economy back on track. Um, we absolutely have to have everybody back to work. I, I think all parties agree, all politics agree that we have to be functioning in that manner. So clearly we need some answers for affordable and safe childcare in Indiana. It's interesting that you bring up those historical points. I, I don't understand why we can't learn. It's like, yeah, Eleanor Roosevelt started one of the massive childcare programs that, that helped with the New Deal. So yeah, it's definitely part of our history. We do cycle it, that's for sure, because you don't learn yes, any lessons. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about your work with foster kids. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? I think all people who work in the foster care arena are consistently sending out messages of statistics only because I think they really paint a picture. So I'll quickly fly through a couple of those just to give you an idea. Within four years of aging out of care, so, you know, foster youth, their 18th birthday is, is not a very happy birthday. It's a court date. So as they leave the courtroom that day, within the first four years, they're faced with 70% of them will be on government assistance. 25% will not have completed high school. 20% of them will become instantly homeless. 50% will be unemployed by 24. 70% of young women leaving foster care will be pregnant by the age of 21. 60% of young men aging out of care have been convicted of a crime, and 50% will develop substance abuse dependency. So the outcomes for these young people um, are very poor and I think at times daunting, but there have been some, some good progressive programs throughout this country 
uh, essentially the one that I worked for, they're connected by 25. Their United Way was incubated as a pilot program through the Jim Casey Foundation. But just putting wraparound supports for these young people for a longer period of time. A lot of people will talk about they don't need a cliff, they need a ramp to emancipation. So when we talk about, you know, helping with employment, housing, education, transportation, you know, some of the barriers they face, there are ways that the state can do that. So, you know, obviously we have extended care now, which is doing really well compared to prior days, but uh, there's just so much more we can do. So I'd like to be a part of that. It's heartbreaking to see that. And these kids, it sounds like oftentimes they're just kind of set up for failure. And I don't know if the government's just like, it's not our problem anymore. You're out of the system, like move on. I think that's appalling and certainly not doing right by those kids. Because these kids, you know, if they're in foster care in the first place, they've probably already been through what a lot of people don't even go through an entire lifetime. Yeah. So um, Child Protective Services uh, from 2009 to 13 said that 63,000 children a year were victims of sexual assault. Of those young people, 34% were under the age of 12. So when we start talking about PTSD, uh, four times more likely to develop symptoms of drug abuse, PTSD, three times more likely to experience depression, things like that. Um, We're looking at a vulnerable population of young people that I think directly ties into your work. But yeah, we can do better. We can do more. Uh, It's always an evolving process. But I think to have someone in the state house with this frontline experience will be helpful. Absolutely. That's exciting to me. I can tell you that. I never had much knowledge of and certainly no work with um, the foster care system or really kids within the foster care system until I started doing sex crimes as a prosecutor. And then especially when I was doing human trafficking cases, so many of the teenage female victims of human trafficking have either been in foster care or are in foster care. And it's a huge, huge, huge issue. As soon as a kid is out of the family home, whatever home it is they grew up in, their risk for being a victim of human trafficking goes way up. And I have seen just like so many cases where they get sent back to foster care over and over and they just keep running away. And it's horrible. And, you know, again, that's why, you know, we're both trying to do some of the things that we're doing is we see these things happen. We're like, okay, let's be a change maker. Let's figure out what we can do. What's the next step rather than just being like, oh, that stinks and kind of move on. So I really appreciate that you're doing that work and that you've had that experience with those kids because I think that'll help kids in your district, certainly once you're in the state house. So with that one kind of segue into talking about specifically kids who have been sexually assaulted or molested, abused, however you want to say it. We've got some unique issues surrounding that within our laws right now. One of the big things though that's going on, and this is actually going on across the country, is and my listeners are like, oh, here she goes again, talking about the statute of limitations, because when we're, you know, kids oftentimes don't tell at all, ever. One third of kids who are molested never tell anybody at all. And I don't think people know that. And that's a huge number. Another third tell while they're still kids, but then another third tell much, much, much later. And our laws don't really reflect that because the average age of disclosure for a survivor of childhood sexual abuse is 52, which is crazy. People are like, really? No, you know, 52 years old. And it is. Unfortunately, though, we have a huge problem because the statute of limitations in Indiana bars them from being able to file a civil suit after their 25th birthday. So here we are. Your statute tolls at 25. Maybe you're not ready yet. And then you are ready here later on down the line. 
and there's nothing that anybody can do about that. Yeah, I think one of the lenses and one of the maybe filters that legislators should be passing all legislation through the lens of would be, how can we be helpful to survivors? So if this statute is not helpful to healing, combating PTSD, working through depressive episodes, and obviously, hopefully preventing it from ever happening again from the perpetrator, I think our legislators failing our citizens. I think we need to make sure that obviously we don't have people who are harming children and harming women and getting away with it. I know that the the stats for people being prosecuted per 100 is very, very low. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe five out of 100 actually even get convicted for, for any crime. Now, criminal versus civil, I understand that we've got strict issues there. But with the civil, I I don't understand if if the average age is 52 and we're looking at data and statistics that show that, why, you know, as a state, we wouldn't believe that to to be true. Yeah, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around because when the numbers are there in black and white, and it's not just doing right by the people that this is already happening to, but the data shows us that when you do allow these civil suits to go forward and you're holding not just a perpetrator accountable, but maybe another negligent party, an employer or something like that, it actually cuts down on future abuse. And so as a legislature, if you're not helping kids, you are helping the perpetrator, period. That's absolutely right. And and to me, I think if obviously more people were listening to your podcast, listening to your work, you know, understanding these things in public forums, reading about this in their spare time, I think that they would obviously side with you on this issue, with your work. But what I don't think people know is what's happening. I think it's very tough to ask every citizen to be abreast of every issue going down at the state house each session. It's overwhelming for people who deal with it professionally. And there's so much on the, <laughs> the state plate every year that it's hard to think that everyone, you know, could know it all, but bringing awareness to the issue, sexual assault whether with children or adults is unacceptable. It's hurtful. Uh, it, it causes lifetimes of damage, and not just to the victim, to their families, uh, mm-hmm. their employers in the future, all of it. So I, I think it's time that, that we look at this issue again. I agree with you. And you said something a few minutes ago that really struck me as being important. I think sometimes, actually oftentimes, even if a person who's been through this has disclosed to someone else, maybe even if there was a criminal conviction, it takes people a really long time to make that connection between this is what happened to me when I was a kid and these are all these issues that I have as an adult and they have no idea that one thing has to do with the other. Again, that's starting with a lack of awareness amongst our society as a whole. I think that they don't understand, what people don't understand what kind of long-term issues this leads to. And it's extremely, it's horrible stuff. And it, you know, and every person's different and everybody has a different journey, but we often see substance abuse disorders, mental health issues, criminality. If you're a victim, a child victim of a sex crime, you're significantly more likely to either be a victim or also be a defendant in the criminal justice system. Well, you know, I think from maybe from the foster care and and that that wraparound service I talk about for those emancipating and aging out of care, I think allowing room for advocacy for young people that have been in the system is crucial. Mm -hmm. I've found that with the young people that I got to know and, and make personal relationships, and now, you know, we continue on in life as Facebook friends and 
And as I watch some of the advocates who work now in their professional career to help better the lives of those in care, making young people aware of these statistics, mm -hmm. uh, some of the barriers that they're likely to face, you know, on a fact sheet, but also almost the permission theory to understand that it's just not their fault. Oh, yeah. None of the abuse, none of the, the, you know, there was a night when they were torn out of their home with police and, you know, an event that was so traumatizing and then placed in a, a holding, you know, stay with a CPS advisor and then placed in foster care with a stranger, maybe with a limited amount of their clothing or bag of whatever they could have grabbed that evening. Um, if you don't talk about trauma in a way like that, I don't know what trauma is. And sometimes for young people, I think it's also important that the state and, and the people recognize that even if, you know, you have a family member, a mother or a father who has done some very damaging things uh, physically or emotionally to you, people need to remember that children don't stop loving their parents or their mothers. So for a separation mandated by the state, maybe from age 14 to 18, that doesn't mean that on, you know, their 18th birthday, they're not going right back to mom's. And that environment might not be the best place for them physically or emotionally. But again, the statistics I talked about, 70% of the young people aging out of care will be on government assistance, 20% immediately homeless. Some of these things, you know, if we do start to invest and, and offer support, I think we're going to see improved outcomes for these young people. I couldn't agree more. It really, it does start on the front end. It starts all the way back here. And if we as a society were doing more for these kids when they're young, I don't think that we would have some of those issues later on. You've got to build that strong foundation and they have to have people that they can count on. And if it's not somebody at home, then what sort of programs can we fund that are going to help these kids as they age out of the system? because we will see them, period. I mean, more than likely, we will see them at some point in time down the road. And, you know, I think a little bit of that is on us for not doing the right thing earlier on. And we talk about that a lot in the criminal justice system. A lot of the defendants, they never had a chance. And all of this is just so interconnected with kids who are, you know, becoming victims, kids who are becoming defendants, whatever. So much of it comes back to so many things that happened as they were developing, you know, throughout life. And when you add in, so it's already difficult. And then when you add in some kind of sexual trauma like this, it makes everything, I think, exponentially diff more difficult. And as they continue through life and they're trying to get treatment for some of these things, it's expensive. And yeah. when you rob them their day in court to try to help address some of those things, I just think that it's another victimization of that person. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even to back it up, you know, a few levels, we talk about, like I said, 24% of the state population are young people. And, and in my mind, education, one of the major reasons I'm running, public education specifically, gives a more equal playing field for all residents in the state, whether that household is a, is a good environment for the child or not. Schools, you know, are asked to do more and more things nowadays to help support students. Not only are they teachers, but they're you know, counselors and therapists and, you know, feeding the, the young folks while they're at school. So children in Indiana were consistently seeing an increase of households with children in the home that don't have a high school diploma. So, you know, when we say that, you know, we're, we're not serving the people in our state well enough, I think that's one area where we need to increase uh, graduation rates. 
Another are children living in working poor households. From 2012 to 2016, we went from 10% to 15% okay. of children are in working poor households. And that's when we start to talk about wage, fair wages. And, and again, the, the COVID epidemic here has shown us who's essential and they need to be paid that way. But high school graduation rates have decreased. Like I said, rates of children entering care is increasing. So we're going in the wrong direction on this issue. I think uh, some of it can be preventative from the state, obviously. So I hope to, to get elected in November and, and be a part of that. Yes, absolutely. That's so exciting because you're right. You can't legislate away everything, but you sure can make a difference. And clearly the laws as they stand are not doing it because we are sliding in all of those areas and we're getting worse. Um, there's a new group that's been formed called Legislative Reform for Indiana Survivors. I can guarantee you, you'll be hearing from them. Interested in talking to people on both sides of the aisle, want everybody working together to try to come, you know, unite and figure this out for kids. Yeah, yeah. well, in a way, I mean, United Way of Central Indiana, I know I'm consistently talking about them, but our CEO, Ellen Anila, I mean, she was a hero uh, in at least my career and upbringing, so to speak, understanding the Indianapolis community um, as a whole. You have to be able to collaborate. You have to be able to bring experts together. You have to be able to listen to the people that are working in these arenas every day. And the thing that I noticed United Way did so well, you know, they made sure that all areas of need were covered. There was no filter for, just as an example, I love Second Helpings. What an amazing mm -hmm. institution, right? Yeah. They're so fun. You can go visit their kitchen. You can be a part of it. You can cook for a night. They have wonderful fundraisers. But when you see the donations from the corporate campaign from United Way come through, they're overwhelmingly, you know, marked second helpings. Everybody loves that agency. They're so fun. We just love, well, at some point you have to say, listen, we also have to help people with this need and this need right. and this need. And I think that translates very well to what the state is asked to do. So the experience I had there, I think is invaluable. And I think we can learn a few lessons from the infrastructure uh, for the work on the ground that they've created. That's awesome. This conversation has been really great. I really, really appreciate your view and your vision for the future. Do you have anything else that you want to say or that you think that listeners need to hear before we sign off? No, I mean, I invite you to read about me. I'd like people to be informed about their candidates, obviously. My opponent, you know, we see differently on a lot of this, I think, for at least the civil process for them to be able to be heard. So I encourage you to read a little bit about the race. My website is kleinforindiana.com. I'm happy to answer any questions if anybody would like to reach out via email. But right now we're 35 days away. You know, we're looking for volunteers to help. We're looking for people to, to pitch in, anything you can do. Because I think flipping this particular seat is going to bring some substantial change to obviously the work you do. I really appreciate that. And I very much agree. Ashley, thank you so much for being here today. I really, really appreciate your dedication to your community and your drive to help Hoosier kids. We definitely need more people like you in the state house. So thank you so much. Just to kind of piggyback on what you said, everybody needs to do their part. we got to get out and vote. It is basically a month away. Voter registration ends on October 5th. That's one week from today. So this won't be out today, but it'll be out this week. So everybody's got to get out there. We all have to do our part. Thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. We'll put Ashley's website and email on the show notes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.